Welcome. This is Out of the Ordinary Books, where we believe that the books we read help us better understand the lives we lead. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And every week we share an Out of the Ordinary book and how it can help you make sense of your story too. These aren't book reviews or recommendations. These are conversations about some of our best friends, worst enemies, toughest coaches, most passionate lovers, and kindest teachers that line our bookshelves. We hope these conversations help you see the deeper story hidden right in plain sight in your ordinary life, too. Get comfy. Here we go. It is an honor to introduce this reading by my friend, Catherine James. You've heard Lisa Joe and I praise her memoir, A Prayer for Orion, on a previous episode of the podcast. Today, just for us, Kate is reading from her first book, an award-winning novel called Can You See Anything Now? It is common these days to give what we call trigger warnings, but when I tell you that Can You See Anything Now begins with a failed suicide attempt and includes harsh realities like drug abuse and self-harm, I am not warning you away. Instead, I am inviting you to go deep sea diving with a trusted guide. This book explores the sometimes painful depths of human hearts, but this author is someone we can trust. She has herself suffered, and yet she stands firmly on solid ground. Indeed, she stands on the rock. This story of Margie, who suffers from multiple sclerosis and has failed to kill herself more than once, and an intergenerational cast of characters, moves between Manhattan and Margie's small town, and it is deeply true, gently humorous, and ultimately shot through with hope. Reading this novel, we see that, as Kate writes, life isn't a simple on-off thing. Instead, life is a spectrum, and not all of us are fully alive. Thankfully, great art can wake us up. It can help us move toward greater aliveness. Can you see anything now? By the time I turned the last page, my answer was yes, yes, yes. I see so much more now. Chapter 1. Margie. Early in the morning. Of all the ways that Margie Nabokot could kill herself, she found it hard to imagine a better way than fading out of the universe with the help of a palm full of pills. Preferably of the white, chalky type. Chunky disks of tiny particles forced together via mechanical arms and metal plates in some factory deep in South America, where the coca leaves shading the whole affair smirk from the jungles. Yes, but with the brave new world comes a certain ease in offing oneself. And with this ease comes monotony. Suicide should contain a bit of drama. Something. Pills were anemic and guns were terrifying. Drowning, on the other hand, had stood the test of time. Smooth, simple, and metaphorically appropriate in light of the lungs filling with liquid and air bubbling upward like packets of life that pop at the surface. And so it was that very early in the morning on September 23rd, 
Margie tied a large stone to her ankle and let it pull her to the bottom of the lake. The plan was well thought out. The rock, in fact, was predetermined, having been chosen by Margie weeks earlier as she walked by the water, contemplating her latest diagnosis of multiple sclerosis and feeding her escalated state of sorrow with tidbits from remembered misfortunes of her youth. The rock itself was a comfort. It had the slightest green tint of algae, one side hugging the mud and slop of the immobile water. She spied it on her evening walk, coming down the hill and around the lake. The size was right, the placement, the color, the tone. The time, she had left her bed at 3.07 according to the glow green digits of her alarm clock, was random. Margie, lying in bed, stone still herself, listening to the tiny wheeze exiting next two small nostrils for more than 15 minutes before she was satisfied he was asleep. Sometimes Nick worked through the night on his thinly imagined magnum opus. Work that called on much obvious material to state what was already obvious to those inclined to reflect on such things as the obvious emotional manifestations of imperfections, ours, theirs, or some abstract combination thereof. She often came downstairs to find him on the couch with his laptop, hunting and pecking the keyboard, a hungry determination on his face as his small, dark eyes darted about in sync with the hasty movements of his fingers. She had some rope and a section of fishing net. The silty gray hue, Margie pictured everything in colors and hues, of her life was just the plain fact of it. Being alive was not an off or on thing. It was a spectrum where death hovered somewhere mid-ambit, and she'd been a flickering thing for years. Things that made her feel real. Art, her own, not someone else's. Sometimes reading, sometimes music, physical pain. This time, she would end her life with an appropriate last breath in the middle of the night, in the quickening breeze of early fall, giving way to the Wikipimi Lake like a soldier on his own sword. She dragged a canoe across a patch of sand, and pushed the bow into the water where it wobbled atop the tiny waves, lifting the load from Margie's arms as though in gentle affirmation of her intention to kill herself. She set the rock with the rope and the net into the bottom of the canoe and pushed hard so that it slid up the sand and into the water in the darkness toward an old swimming raft floating on oil drums 40 yards out. Back straight, she sliced a paddle into the water, gliding quietly forward, stars across the sky. Once on the swimming raft, she shoved the canoe away with her foot, a kick with a bit of lazy anger behind it, and set to wrapping the rock in the net and tying the rope to the net and then her ankle. The sky was dark, but for the stars, the water was black. Still, there wasn't the void that she had imagined. She knew the edges of the lake, the sloping hill beyond, the soft haze of certain light across the sky that hinted at the more nocturnal part of town. And these things felt to her like intruders. She sat on the edge of the raft. Gripping the rope tightly, she slowly lowered the rock into the water, stalled for a moment, and let go. The rock tugged her ankle down fast, then her leg, and she tightened her lips. She felt the firm tug in her leg, and then also her torso, as though the rope was tied to her heart, and gently yanking it, the way she remembered the placenta after Noel was born, finally easing out of her as the doctor pulled at the umbilical cord. 
She gripped the edge of the raft, and the rough wood dug a fierce line into the back of her thighs. One leg sunk deep into the water, the other floating near the surface and ready to follow. Small swells of water flapped cool around her half-sunk leg, and a breeze only strong enough to muss a few strands of hair touched the side of her face. She stared at the waves. It was entirely possible to feed oneself with sorrow to the point that, above or below the water, a turning would happen, a redirection. The canoe wandered alone, a dark oblong shape now nosing the shore. Marjorie looked up at the stars. The stars were her friends, she thought to herself, before slipping into the water and letting the rock sink down, tugging her body in one very fine movement with a solid, hapless jerk. As she slipped into the water, the rock sank into the slop of mud at the bottom and yanked her under. She felt the tiny pings of rough mud and sand hit her legs as the rock kicked up debris from the bottom. And then, in a way that she understood as her natural, her instinctual desire to live, she found her head above water after all, her puma-clad feet balancing on the very rock that was supposed to bring her demise, that dark finger of a morning. It was unclear whether the lake was low because of high temperatures and the recent short-term drought, or whether her memory had simply failed her. She hadn't been in the lake for five years. It was not as deep as she remembered. She stood on the rock with her chin tilted up for two hours, cavernous air above, half floating, half standing, her arms bearing nothing but the wave-like currents of the lake as the stars faded and a low fog settled over the water as Pritt's morning routine. A group of ducks squawked, winging over her and splashing awake as her thin legs reached forward, guiding them in a synchronized landing. She relaxed, making threads of her limbs and slipped under the water to rest her neck and arms and then back up, face wet, blinking water from her eyes. A few early walkers and joggers began to appear, coming down the short hill and rounding the corner and back up the other hill. She could see Cecilia Henley, the woman with the twins, in the backyard strewn with little tyke's playthings. Her thick thighs jugging left and right, large feet pointed slightly out as she began the climb, as though the street was the large trunk of a tree, and here she needed to wrap herself around it, grip it between her legs, and keep her focus on the sky. Cecilia Henley tilted her head back as she ran, gasping. Knees out, feet out, pavement passing slowly beneath her. It was a funny thing to watch. Margie let herself pee and felt the cloud of guilty warmth around her for a moment before it gave way again to the cool water of the weak peony. Her limbs were by now sucked clean of any vitality, their structure loosening, bone, muscle, and nerve dividing into a useless rubbery mass. She had no choice but to call out, Hello? She tilted her head back farther when she called, and the white morning sky blinded her. Hey! A jogger stopped and hesitated, turning toward the lake. He put his hands on his hips, breathing hard, and walked curiously to the edge of the water. It was James O'Neill. She could tell, because of his stocky size and even from far away the purity of face, that look of wonder that he always had. Eyebrows up toward the middle of his forehead, like he never could quite figure out something or like there was an element of surprise for him in the most mediocre of things. He wore a green shirt with white lettering and gray athletic shorts. He stretched his head forward and squinted, 
peering across the water. Hello? He called out. It's Margie Nethercott. Margie? I'm stuck. Margie? Chapter 2. Margie. These Complications. Seemed to touch at her throat and jaw with every beat. What a failed suicide felt like was a hangover. She ran a hand through her hair, pausing at the base of her neck. She was familiar with beauty, but cursed with its expectations. Her body had begun its revolt already in the usual ways. Five pounds here, certain sag to the upper eyelids, the skin at her elbows chalky and loose. Her jawline was firm, though, and her face had yet to lose that perfect symmetry and form that could still turn ahead. She ran the water into the bath hotter than she was used to and slowly lowered herself into it. A pile of wet clothes lay beneath the towel rack. She looked up at the small window above the tub and watched shadows from the Japanese maple in the backyard flutter across the sheer of the curtains. James O'Neill had been kind and understanding, paddling the canoe out and getting into the water, feeling down to the deep with a rope and tugging on it, going under and seeing the difficulty of the tight knot. And yes, he would need a knife, something sharp, so just hang in there. No pun intended, or at least these are the thoughts that Margie had. And he would be right back. Are you doing all right? Are you getting tired? The duck's bothering you? And what the hell were you thinking? These last two thoughts, again, just Margie's. There was, in the end, a small group of neighbors, Mary Summerfield, Al Carson, and then Nick, finally, tired looking and drawn and wearing those freaking shoe slippers that he insisted were meant to be worn in or out of the house. Finally, he had showed up, having been called. The irritable scrape of the aluminum canoe, spot of wet rope still on her ankle, the fog gone, and then the terrible, terrible blue sky. It was easiest to be silent, but then the silence began to own her, pressing an invisible palm over half her face as she walked with Nick to the car and he said the things to others that needed to be said. We'll have to figure things out. Thank you for your help. Nick was very, very good at these things. People expected it of him. I'm so grateful that you were here. She turned the hot water off, ran the cold for 30 seconds, and sank deeper into the tub. She looked at her feet, half afloat, above the drain. Under the water, they looked so young, like a child's feet, white and soft and honorable. Nick knocked on the door and came in. He stood there. I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, Margie said. I could be very angry. He pinched the bridge of his nose, and his glasses popped up half an inch. He crossed his chest with his other arm. You know, I am. Sorry, I am. He leaned back against the sink and gripped it with his hands. He stared at the floor. My work looks like crap and my hands shake. I'm tired, Nick. My symptoms are getting worse. Everything slants, at least in my head. Nick stared at her without seeing, his mind at a specific place. Then we call the doctor and we discuss it with him. And it's not just about that anyway, Margie said. You're always marginalizing things, you of all people. Sometimes I just, I'm just, I'm so tired. Nick had a degree in psychology and studied forms of vascular resting therapy. 
vascular resting therapy was something he thought of himself. Everything is connected to the blood, he said. Like plant life, the physical body is only as alive as it is receiving nutrients, air, soil, sun, water. He told her these things eagerly, enthusiastic, and went back to work before she could comment. Sometimes Margie imagined veins that were all leathery and shriveled from being outside the body. She imagined pulling at them like shoelaces, dragging a faded heart or a shriveled kidney across the floor. The organs would make a scratching sound since they, since they were dry and lacked blood. There was a large leather chair in Nick's office purchased from Blackstone, where his client sat. Nick let what was left of his graying hair grow a good two inches below his ears where it curled outward. He wore jeans and with a rip under one knee and moccasin slippers that were smooth on the soles like dog paws. His glasses were thick, black-rimmed circles. He crossed his arms and nodded, still staring at the grass floating under the faucet. Sometimes I just feel so tired. And then I had this energy that came out of nowhere, and it had to be used or it would disappear. It would get wasted and disappear if I didn't, I don't know, act somehow. Of course, what else could you do? Nick looked at the floor. Don't be like that. I want you to know what it's like. Productive ways to use energy. And here he hung his head a little bit forward so that it bounced with each word as though attached to springs. Go for a run, make dinner, clean out the goddamn shed. It wasn't the first time Margie had done something so stupid. There was a depression, and then there were fits of something like rage, an energy that could come, they both knew by now, express itself by locking itself into bathrooms with razor blades and pills opening car doors on interstates, courageous, almost acts of violence that never quite made it to the next level, never being the key word here, for some sort of the same scenario had happened enough times to squeeze the danger out of them. Nick had other things going, still, still. Even with a razor blade and opening up doors on the interstate, the lake was a pure shot towards something so fundamentally deep and shallow all at the same time and she had never never intended it to be so public she should do something with this margie thought retrospective of suicide attempts so terribly meaningful and so terribly stupid and so terribly futile let's just not tell noelle okay she tilted her head back against the tub and i'm really sorry sure margie no, I won't tell Noel, Nick said, and left the bathroom, but not before taking a swipe at a toothbrush next to the sink. It flew off the vanity and hit the wall, landing in the toilet. Mary Summerfield showed up at the house with a casserole. It's a spaghetti casserole, she said, in a slight lilt left over from childhood in Georgia. Baked spaghetti. She set the corning ware down on the kitchen table. She wore oven mitts with culinary terms printed on them in green Italian-looking script and olives and sprigs of basil in between the words. Her extra weight was keeping her young, Margie thought to herself, filling in potential creases around her eyes and mouth. Her neck, which should have been crepey and ropey, was risen dough, giving her the advantage of having the look of someone to be trusted. It's one of Julie's favorites. Julie was Mary's granddaughter, 
Margie had spent a frustrating week painting the girl, working to make her mouth less static. The girl had been like a corpse of paint. Her eyes, mouth, nose, everything flaccid. No brain in that girl. Mary stood in the kitchen with her gloved hands on her hips. Last week, I made eight of these. Eight. She rolled her eyes halfway before continuing. That was for Julie's soccer club. I don't know much about soccer, but at least I can cook. She's on the traveling team this year, and they decided to make her captain. She's worked so hard at bringing that team together. Last Saturday, we put together 16 pairs of flip-flops with blue and yellow team colors braided around the straps. The girls love them. And then she stalled, sweeping an armlet through the air as though to erase the words. Margie, you need to get more rest. Forget the art for a while. It will always be there. Then she bustled about, opened the oven door, closed it, turned the temperature up, glanced into the dark living room for Nick. Margie watched her the way a camera sees a city at night with a shutter open, light trails interspersed with fixed moments. She had barely seen her at the oven before she was over at the sink, turning on water, running a thick thumb through the flow. Time felt slow and fast at the same time and could only be tolerated if Margie kept her distance. There are many people who have difficult things to deal with. Just take care of yourself. Her tongue was visible between the sounds coming out from her mouth as though it was necessary to push them out. Margie began to smell the spaghetti warming in the oven and felt sick. It was dusk outside. Nick appeared carrying a small paperback book. The back of the book said in large yellow letters that moved in stages into smaller black type. The Higgs boson lies dormant as far as its identity, but this book will. Nick set the book on the counter and placed a hand on Mary's shoulder. It was very kind of you to come, he said. We'll enjoy the spaghetti, I'm sure. Stop by tomorrow sometime for the dish. I'd say you could keep it, but it's honestly, it's my favorite one for baked casseroles. Noelle will be home for the weekend, Nick said, walking her down the hall to the door. I'll have her run it up to you. And thank you. Thank you, Mary. Nick opened the door and she stepped to one side and strained her neck so that she could see back to the kitchen. Margie stood with her back to the sink. She raised a hand goodbye. She smiled. Well, I'm happy to be of help. You let me know if there's anything you need, anything at all, anything. And then yelled, I mean that. She patted out the door, oven mitts under one fleshy arm like two dead fish. Thank you. Margie called weakly from the kitchen. Nick closed the front door, glanced at Margie. Sorry, he said, and walked back down the hall to his office. Margie poured herself a glass of wine from a box that Nick kept in the fridge and went into the living room. There was a plaid chair, a relic from her grandfather's apartment. She sat down and stared straight ahead for a moment before snapping back to life. The house was old, worn chart even, sort of house that appeared inherited, cushions with tassels and linen curtains bleached by the sun. Sometimes there seemed to her a sort of purgation working the corners and walls, blanching somehow, and the way the floorboards continued to grow lighter in the high traffic areas, the carpets more threadbare. She took a sip of wine and leaned back into the chair. Nick came out of his office and walked past the living room on his way to the kitchen, looking for the book he'd left on the counter. As he looked, his mouth turned down at the corners and his round black rimmed glasses, along with the loose skin of his neck, made him look like a turtle. 
Do you know when you talk, you personify everything? Marge just said half to herself. Her feet were crossed on a small ottoman, and she compulsively shook one of them as though to distract herself. More than most people, you say things like the couch is barfing stuffing, or the rain is eating at the kitchen table. You have an oral thing, too. It's all about the mouth. It's always all about the mouth. Nick came around the corner holding a mug of something. I've never been all that Freudian, Margie, if that's what you're getting at, he said, taking a sip. And then, I can't explain you to people. He sat down across from her on the ottoman. You remember the Aesop fable, the one about the wolf? Oh, God, no. Are you serious? I'm not being mean. Listen, it's not that I don't understand. It's just that there are appropriate ways to struggle with things. Struggling, by definition, is not something you choose. How does one appropriately struggle? She tilted her head for emphasis. Nick looked past her out the window and shook his head the tiniest bit. I'm just, I, I think I'm, I'm overwhelmed. There was a silence. Margie continued. I think sometimes I don't, I'm okay, even though I've got issues, problems. She shrugged her shoulders. I've got it together, but then there's all this shit that comes out of nowhere. Right, I get that. No, Nick, you don't get anything about this. She started to spread her arms to indicate herself and then let them fall. Dropped her head and began to cry quietly. Nick stood and went to her. He put his hand on her shoulder. She looked up at him and said through her tears, It is true that you personify everything. It's something I've been meaning to tell you. But she didn't say it with much heft, for she'd been struck by something in his eyes and barely heard his voice. Nick was a fake. He had to be. Either he was a fake or she was. Alone in bed, she held the morning's events at arm's length. She couldn't bring herself to think about them. If she allowed a thought, such as the fog and James O'Neill swimming around down near her ankles trying to untie her knots, she let out a stale whimper of shame. When Nick crawled into bed, she remembered how she had lain still in the early morning, waiting for the slow movements of his breath so that she could sneak down to the lake. She inched away from him, closer to the side of the bed, and let her chin rest on the edge. And she laughed. She laughed quietly by herself, a slight breath impossible to hear. Of course, how foolish. It was a ruse. She must not self-sabotage anymore. And yet that was the point, no? She looked in the dark at the floor. She smelled the musk of the worn Persian carpet, a smell she associated somehow with love, a stale musk that reminded her of her grandfather, his studio, his cigarettes, the soft wool of his worn jacket, her grandfather, Lee, 78 and done with his own special suffering. He had left her his paint and his brushes, a trio of palette knives tied with a blue ribbon. If you enjoyed today's conversation, won't you take a moment right now, open up that podcast app and look for the subscribe button right next to our podcast profile image. And we think this podcast is best enjoyed with friends. So tell a friend, click share episode in your podcast app and send a friend our link.